0: I think it's a pretty common experience for people to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus, become a Christian, realize somewhere along the line, maybe very quickly, it might take a little bit of time, that you can't do Christian life alone. I think it's pretty typical for people to get in that situation and realize that they're supposed to be in community with other Christians. They're supposed to become part of a local church. But taking that step and learning how to relate to other Christians is a genuine challenge for many people, I think. We use a lot of different modern terms today to talk about the way Christians relate to one another. We might say, uh, you need to get plugged in at a church. We might say, you need to get connected to a Christian community. You need to do life with one another. There's lots of isms that we use, and I don't think they're wrong. It's just the way we kind of talk about our Christian relationships with one another. And yet... There seems to be a variety of different areas in which people just struggle with doing that well. And that's not surprising because that's the way that we tend to interact with a bunch of different types of relationships in our lives. So, for example, it may be very simple for two young people to fall in love. But actually doing life together in a marriage can be very challenging. Learning how to relate to one another as many married people can attest. But we are designed to operate in community with one another as Christians. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians is dealing with a bunch of issues that the Corinthian church is facing. In fact, there are a handful of errors that that local church is trying to manage. And Paul is bringing instruction into these things. And in chapters 11 through 14, he deals with specifically how members in a local church ought to relate to one another. First in this sermon series, we covered the Lord's Supper. Last week, uh, through the writing here, Paul introduced the idea of spiritual gifts. Today, we're going to continue in that vein, talking about spiritual gifts, utilizing those things as members of one body. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. I'm going to read the passage out loud, verses 12 through 26. I'll pray, and then we'll go ahead and dive in uh, a verse or two at a time. Let's read and then pray. that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to have your word. We love that this is our guide in all things faith and life. And I pray that you'd help us to internalize these truths right now. Churches throughout the history of this Christian era have appealed to these passages to learn how we're supposed to relate with one another. And I think that's exactly why these passages are here. So, Lord, please use these for the purpose that they are intended. Help us to be edified and served by these verses. But most importantly, Lord, help us learn to love and honor and trust and worship and praise you more and better because of what we read today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Going back again through... This passage back to the beginning, 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, throughout this chapter, Paul will repeatedly use the word body. In Greek, it's soma. He's going to use this word as an illustration for the church. He actually uses it 18 times in this passage alone. At least that's how the English translations will continue to place it. And here in verse 12, he introduces his first comparison between an individual physical body and a collection of people that form a church. And this point is clear. Just as a physical body is comprised of many parts, so is a church. But how is it that we become members of one body? Well, it says that in the next verse. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He uses these baptized drink pieces of language here. And he talks about this as an act that's happening through the spirit or in the spirit, by the spirit. I'm reminded by Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, where Jesus said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. This is John the Baptist talking about Jesus coming. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John is baptizing people with a water baptism. Jesus will come and baptize people with the Holy Spirit and fire. I do not believe that in this passage in 1 Corinthians that these words here are referring to water baptism and drinking of the communion cup. That's why I showed you Matthew chapter 3. There's a reference point in the New Testament for talking about baptism and even communion. They aren't talking about those remembrance elements. Rather, these are the spiritual realities that happen at conversion by the Spirit. And they are symbolized in the ordinances. In other words, believers get baptized in water because by faith in Jesus, we are already baptized by the Spirit. Believers drink the cup of communion because we are already filled with the Spirit of Christ. You and I do not become one body after years of clear thinking and hard work. It's not the way that it works in our Christian living. We are members of Christ's body right now. If you were a believer, If you have saving faith in the Lord Jesus alone for your salvation, you are a member of the body of Christ, universal. But how we should think and live because we are there really matters. We can either think and live rightly as a healthy body or wrongly as an unhealthy body. So the first and most obvious error to be avoided is you cannot live the Christian life properly All alone. That's right out of the gates in this body language. There's one body, but many members. You were brought into that membership by conversion. The person who refuses to be in community with other believers is like a severed limb. That's the image being conveyed here. Member, this word is being used over and over as well. This is one of the places in the Bible that affirms local church membership. Now, of course, the word member being used here is most directly referring to the physical parts of a body. That's why it's being used here, an appendage, a limb. Now, I've heard people say that there's no membership prescribed in the New Testament, and that's just not true at all. All over the New Testament do we have explanations of exactly how it is that Christians are to relate to one another inside of a local church gathering. But what is true is that there's no formality prescribed for how a person should indicate one's membership in a local church. That's true. There is no place that it says vote on members, or the elders determine members, or you have to sign a contract to be there, or you have to agree on a statement of faith. Those things, admittedly, are not specified in the New Testament, but membership is all over the New Testament. I've heard some say before, I don't need church membership because I'm already spiritually a member of the body of Christ. Now, that's true, that if you're a Christian, you are a member of the universal body of Christ. But by that same logic, a person might reject the outward signs of baptism and communion. Because I'm already baptized in the Spirit, I don't need to get in the water. Because I already have drunk of the Spirit in the spiritual sense, I don't need to take communion. Because I'm already a member of the body of Christ, I don't need to display that in membership at a local church. These signs, these symbols are important to us. They recognize and acknowledge what is already spiritually true. In a similar way, two people getting married may have already determined in their hearts to be together forever, but it is a wedding ceremony in which that's actually publicly displayed and covenant is made. So the application point about something like that is quite simple. Become a member of a local church. If you you call the Mission Church your church home, become a member here. We are super patient with people on this. If you don't know this, the elders are really united on this idea that we think that people should become members at a church. But we understand that sometimes people get finicky about formalities. And that's okay because formalities aren't spelled out in the New Testament. We're very eager to help people join in with the church. And membership is so simple. It quite simply is, can you affirm my faith? Yes. If a person's a believer, yes, we think we can affirm your faith as best as a person can. Do you call this church your church home? Yes. Can we tell other people that? If the answer is yes to those, welcome to church membership. That's how that works out. A church may find all variety of different ways that we think might be a helpful way to uh, formalize those things, but membership is important. This is so critical for us to see here because Paul is trying to help us to be informed on our role as members in a local church. But at this point, with just two verses in, someone could challenge, well, if we've all been made one body, then why do we all look so different from one another? And that's exactly what Paul's about to tackle. Look look with me at verses 14 through 17. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So you see the the imagery, the illustration that Paul is extending here, and it's it's a really helpful one because we are united together in one and yet distinct. The fact that Paul here is using this example should clue us in to what was going on in the Corinthian church. Remember in verse 1, he said that he did not want them to be uninformed about spiritual things. That's what he started right out of the gate as he got to this category of error. Hey, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to have a lack of data or information. I don't want you to get this wrong in your minds. You need to think rightly about spiritual things, spiritual giftings, namely here and this is one of their misunderstandings one of the things that needs to be addressed or corrected some in the Corinthian church rightly expected that they were one body with the other disciples in their congregation but they also accurately observed that not everyone was the same and that's why he's dealing with the subjection okay so for the body does not consist of one member one member but of many if the foot should say one thing and the hand another if they should not see each other in that body together how are we to operate People realize we have distinctions. And the difference is those distinctions are not superfluous. They're substantial. But each part is needed for the benefit of the whole body. I've heard it said, and I think this is a helpful term, unity should not be confused with uniformity. We can have unity and not uniformity. The world is all messed up on this idea of diversity. Do you know this? The world cannot get their minds straight about diversity. They can't demonstrate it well. They can't explain it well. They don't understand the value in it. They think it's a value by itself, and they they misunderstand where those kinds of things come from. And it is important for a church to display to the world around it how we are to live even diverse. But don't forget, this is not a passage about general diversity. That's not what this passage is about. Not that one person's tall, another's older, one has multiple advanced degrees, another's born in a foreign country, one person has a quiet personality, another's a dog lover. That's not, that's not what's being talked about here. Race and gender, that's not what's on display. What is spiritual gifts, what God has explicitly designed for a person to be and how they are to operate with those things in the church. It is primarily about diversity of spiritual gifts. That's primarily what is on display here. So the first error would be thinking that you are not a part of the body at all. He already made it clear, you are. You are a part of the body. If you are a member, if you are a Christian converted in your soul, the Spirit has done His work, you are a member of the body. The body does not consist of just one, but of many members. But the second error is thinking of yourself as less a part of the body as others based on observed giftedness. You and I will notice as we view one another, we will notice distinctions between one another. But those differences do not determine the level of one's belonging to a church. And notice, wrong thinking here does not change the fact that you are a part of the body. I love when the Bible clarifies these types of things. Look at this. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, what does Paul say? Well, that, well, I guess perception is reality, right? No, no. That would not make it any less a part of the body. It'd be like if one of your kids said, I don't even feel like I'm a kid in this family. Yeah, you're a part of this family. Yeah, you are. You think that in the moment. Maybe some things need to be addressed. But no, you are. Like it or not, you are a part of the family. Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. This is wrong thinking. And Paul is trying to deal with this because oftentimes we perceive things in ourselves, we perceive things in others, and one of the first errors would be thinking wrongly about ourself. I don't have that. I don't look like that, so therefore I must not belong in the same way that that person belongs. Paul corrects that here. And in verse 18, he says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. The differences in the Corinthian church, as in ours, were divinely designed. The difference in spiritual gifting granted on behalf of the Father for the sake of his saints are there for a reason. And Paul makes this clear over and over. I wanna read for you back in verse six, what he said here. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So who empowers them and everyone? God does. Verse 7 said, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What's the origin? The Spirit gives us. We talked last week about how the Trinity is, is working here in the giving of the gifts. Verse 11 says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. We just covered verse 18, but down in verse 24, we'll see, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. So just to hammer this, because Paul seems to hammer it, who determines what spiritual gifts a person has? God does. Not you, not me. You don't go to a special school to gain some advantage in a particular spiritual gift. It's not the way it works. The Lord gives. And why does he give those gifts to the body? God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. I've had my kids ask me questions before about the human body. Like, why did God give us five fingers? Why did God give us two ears? And you can come up with reasons. You can try to explain reasons. But at the end of the day, because he chose them, because he knew for his glory and for our good, this was optimal. This is what God wanted for us. He is the one who makes that choice in our physical bodies as much as he does in the church. You and I, then, should be reminded just how important it is to accept and to embrace how God has gifted us individually. Remember the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife. It goes on to a list of other things. One of the chief problems with coveting is not accepting what God has granted wanting what you, see, you observe or see in someone else, envying someone else. And this is the root issue that Paul is seeking to correct in this particular passage. People are looking at others around them. And there's, there's a wrong thinking going on. At first, they're like, well, I might not be a part of the body. My goodness, that person's so much more a part of the body. I must not be. I can't help but imagine in the kind of a, it's a sports analogy, this would be like, uh, like a lineman, because he never scores a touchdown, feeling like he's not really part of the football team. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't make you any less a part of the team because the roles and responsibilities are divvied up distinctively. But Paul is next going to explain the issues that flow from the lack of contentment of where we are and understanding of the gifts God has given us. Verses 19 through 21 If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts. Yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. A homogenous body would be grotesque. Imagine a body that's just a giant hand. I mean, that's literally what he's saying, right? That's the whole idea. If all were a single member, or, or imagine a body part, Body is made of just feet or just eyes. It's, it's, it's not even something you can really get in your mind, but if you try to, it's something that's grotesque, that's not the way the body is designed to operate. Now, this might seem a bit repetitive, these errors that he's um, parroting here for our sake. But it's dealing with a slightly different error. The previous paragraph was encouraging individual Christians in a church body to think rightly about their own position in the body. You might have noticed that. I'll read, read again up there. Uh, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That's the idea at play there. I, because I don't have with that person, I don't demonstrate or display this kind of gifting. I must not be as needed around this place. But here, you notice, it's kind of pointed towards someone else. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Your your gift is not needed. You're not really important here. You can just be removed. This instruction is warning against judging another's position in the body and the giftedness that the Lord has granted for the good of the church and to his praise. Don't think wrongly about yourself or about others. You know, when we see this, we we need to be reminded this happens in churches. Paul's not writing this in here because this isn't an error that's likely for us to deal with. The Corinthian church was not so weird. The Corinthian church is actually far more typical than many of us would like to acknowledge. We think wrongly in a whole variety of categories in our lives. And we mismanage relationships with one another, starting with wrong thinking and then wrong exercise. We have to make sure that we're being careful to not cross these lines, just like he's saying, to think wrongly about our own design by God and also others. Paul was concerned that either this had already been happening in Corinth or that it could. And brothers and sisters, you need to know that it either could happen or is happening here at the Mission Church at any given time. We constantly need to be prepared. I remember uh, going skiing with a Christian brother at one point, and I... Just talking about church practice together. He went to a different church. He was a leader at a different church. We were just chatting about the way that the church worked and operated and such. And he brought up some things I thought were just kind of interesting about the way that they kind of operated as church. Like, oh, that's, you know, for, Paul deals with that. He actually says, you shouldn't do this. You should do this in a few places. And he's like, oh, we're not, we're not at, at risk of falling into those errors. Oh, really? Why not? Well, they're really a mess here. We're not so much of a mess. I said, oh, really? Brothers and sisters, it's good for us to be reminded we're prone to these errors. If you and I see things in the Bible that warn us against a certain kind of folly, to think I could never fall into that is a very dangerous kind of statement. You've got to look at these and see, hmm, if not today, perhaps tomorrow, the enemy would love to divide Christ's church in such a way. It should be said, I do believe that this is primarily, chiefly, talking about the way that people should operate, Christians should operate, in a local church. And here's why I think that. I've been kind of making a bit of this case over time. I think that as we go, it'll be a stronger case when Paul begins to unpack what it should look like in an individual service-type gathering. But not only are the lines, when you come together, when you assemble together, when you come together as a whole church, used right before this and after this. Okay, This this passage is kind of book-ended by uh, the the book flaps, the when-you-come-together language of the individual church in Corinth. But also, everything he's talking about right here clearly is what is experienced inside of a local church. That's the kind of thing that this is chiefly experienced. In other words, there may be a Christian brother or sister in another country on the other side of the planet who has a particular spiritual gift. You don't even know that person's name, know the country they live in, where they are. That's not the experience of the believer. That's not the experience of these Corinthians who are having these wrong views. This is the way that we're going to relate to one another on a regular basis. So we must heed these warnings. And the wrong thinking here is being corrected. And here is how we should be thinking instead. Don't think like this. Think like this. Verses 22 through 25. This is another place where Paul is helping us understand body life with this illustration of the physical body. I think it's awesome. And we learn so much about body life from this illustration. I want you to consider several things that are being either clearly laid out or necessarily inferred from this passage, these few verses right here. First, we must acknowledge not all parts of the body, not all members of a church, not all individuals in a church appear the same, because we aren't identical. Paul acknowledges, this is the point, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, he doesn't go, they don't seem to be weaker, everybody seems the same. No, the, 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 we're gonna notice that kind of gifted diversity. It's going to be something that is evidenced in that church. But the parts that seem to be weaker are indispensable. There are parts of our physical bodies that pull, don't pull a lot of weight, but they're critical to our functioning. They're useful for a purpose. I knew a buddy in high school who went to light a bonfire and burned all of his eyebrows off. <laughs> Gone. It took him like a year for those to grow back. Not only did he look weird, admittedly, he looked weird, but every time we'd play basketball and he sweat, like all of his sweat would come right into his eyeballs and he realized, oh, there's a reason for your eyebrows. <laughs> so while your eyebrows may not pull a lot of weight in your body, they're designed for a reason. We can, we can think about the way a body's put together and imagine Lord's designed a church in a similar way. Some roles in a church may not appear to be very consequential, but they're critical to the functioning of the body. They have a purpose. Consider, consider Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7, the first martyr of the Christian church after Acts 2, the, the, the church coming together there in Jerusalem. The first martyr. What, what, was, what was his role? Wait on tables. That's what he was. The first martyr was not one of the the apostles, the mighty ones, the ones doing the miracles out and above, the the ones that everyone saw as the the, the main guys that everybody wanted to be like. No, the first one who gave his life for the gospel in the church waited on tables, helped settle disputes between people, sharing of food between different sets of widows in the church. And Look at the honor given to that brother. Additionally, there are parts that we think less honorable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. This is, like think about a physical body. There are parts of your body that you keep covered even in a swimsuit. And that's not because those parts are unimportant to you. On the contrary, we treat those parts with greater modesty. That's the idea. God is the one who gives greater honor to the part that lacked it. Look what it says there. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, again, again, we view the body and we think certain things, we bestow greater honor on the ones that we think less honorable, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. The parts that shouldn't be presented to the world, to everyone around you, they're treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. You don't have to cover your hands. No, no, no one thinks that a woman is being immodest if she's not wearing gloves when she's walking around. I, I, I get culture changes over time, the way people tend to view these types of things. And yet, all cultures acknowledge there are some parts that are modest and some that are immodest to be presented before others. But God so composed the body, again, there's God did this, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. God gives greater honor to the part that lacked it. Think about that. There are parts of the church. There are members, people in a church, who may not receive the recognition, the accolade, the honor that they are due. And so what does God say? I'll give it to you. God supplies the honor to the part that lacked it. There will be parts of the body that will lack recognition and honor from others, necessarily. It's just the way that it tends to work. But God gives great honor to those parts, on those whose labor is not openly observed, openly transparent. Someone who exercises gifts in a church not readily observable, they easily go unseen. But those gifts being exercised do not go unseen by God. Just imagine a pastor gathering together a, a prayer meeting together, good, good with words, uh, able to, to organize things well, get the whole body together, and maybe even after a prayer time, people would kind of pat on the back, man, pastor, thanks so much for that. that was really You said that just right. That was really helpful. Uh, you reminded me of X, Y, and Z. That's really important. A lot of honor granted, a lot of honor given right then. But what about the, the older woman sitting in the back row who then goes home quietly after that time and hours on her knees in that upcoming week, appealing to the Lord for the needs of her church. Who sees that? Not many. In fact, oftentimes, it's with great God-honoring humility that a person in that kind of situation does not seek honor from people. So does the Lord forget that? No. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. You and I probably have known believers in our lives. I I certainly have had the privilege of knowing believers in my life that will never stand on a stage, very likely, almost certain. The kind of people who will probably never get public commendation, accolades, And the kind of person that when when I perceive and view that person, I can't help but see like just a warrior in the kingdom of God. The Lord does not allow that kind of situation to go without acknowledgement, but it may be a heavenly kind of acknowledgement. If you ever feel like your service in a church body is going unrecognized, remember this. Remember this. Not only that, but expect it. Expect that this might be the way. You know, there's a little bit of our impulse to push back on the every kid gets a trophy kind of thinking. And in part because that's true. It's, it's, it's not everybody's going to be able to receive equal commendation for what goes on. Not everybody's going to be seen by everyone around us equal either from our own folly or from what is just able to be observed. But God does not let that ultimately and eventually go unnoticed. Think about that. Does the Lord let any wicked deed go unpunished? Not one. Ultimate, final, and absolute vindication will take place at the final day of judgment. Either every sin will be punished in that person, in hell for all eternity, or in Christ on the cross on their behalf. In a similar way, the Lord does not let any good deed go unnoticed. Any exercise of these gifts will be honored by the Lord. And just something that may be helpful for someone who struggles with this. If you struggle with that, if you're like, man, no one even ever notices the stuff that I do for the church. No one ever notices the way that I care for the Christians in my circle. Perhaps it might be helpful to be challenged. Would you rather have the praise from men or from God? And why does God do this? Why is it that God has so composed the body in this way, giving greater honor to the part that like it? Why do they do that? That there may be no division in the body. That's the purpose. So God designed the body with diversity, with distinction in its gifting and the way that people exercise. those. That there may be no division in the body. But that the members have the same care for one another. Everyone will get honored for doing their part one way or the other. And notice, all should receive the same care, even if all do not experience the same recognition for their service. I think that's what's going on there in that last line. But the members may have the same, but that the members may have the same care for one another. All should receive the same care. You may not get the same recognition, but care. It may not be difficult for us to kind of get ourselves into a pity party moment. No one cares about me. That, that might not be true. Be, be, be slow to judge that. Maybe. We are receiving the same care as one another even if we're receiving different levels of recognition for what's observed that is likely to happen. Which body? Which parts of the body deserve the most care? Well, no one over the others. If you were to get in a car accident and get a deep, long, stitch-worthy gash on some part, you wouldn't just go, oh, that's just my neck. I don't need the gash. Or that's just my hand. That's just my- I don't need to deal with it. No, if you had a gash, you'd get it taken care of no matter which part of the body it happened to be on. These all parts deserve the same care, and this should be helpful for us to be reminded that we do need to be always on the watch to make sure that the members of our body are receiving the same care. Are we are we remembering everyone well? Are we are we being thoughtful about uh, you know this person and this this category of people who fall into this category? Are we are we being careful about that? Man, I think it honors the Lord we pause and go. Man, it's so easy to remember this and this and this, but wow, it's so hard sometimes to remember uh, these other thoughts, these other problems, these other needs that may not be so known by others. I think the Lord is honored when we pause and go, how may we care well for one another that all should receive the same care. The body provides such an excellent metaphor for local churches. There's so many ways. I don't think we're to have license to, to exhaust all the, all the corners of this illustration, but... Getting along with the others in the body can be challenging. We have to know that that's the case, but right thinking is our starting point. Some parts, for example, have to coordinate more than others. Some some people in a church will be more closely associated with, with each other than others will be. And that's okay. That's the way that the body is designed to operate. In other words, you may be really tight with four or five other people in your, your, your uh, Christian uh, body life, like fingers on a hand that tend to, every time the hand grabs something, works together. And that's okay, because the body's designed like that. You may be super close to some and, and acknowledge that you're a part of the greater body, even those that you coordinate less with, like the thumb and the big toe kind of thing. Some parts might be less likely to coordinate regularly, and yet they are equally part of that same body, needing one another. Coordinating with one another in efficient and effective ways takes work. But learning how to do that brings great joy. You see, you see a little kid who's kind of operating with their body and learning how it works. I remember just this last weekend, my four-year-old wanted to help vacuum, which basically means I'm going to be unclogging Barbie heads from the bottom of the vacuum cleaner. That's how, that's how my four-year-old helps me vacuum. Why? Because she's still little. She's learning her muscles and how to stand and get behind a big vacuum and move it. And she's learning how to even use her body rightly. And we observe this in little kids all the time. And the same is true with churches, especially young churches. One of the chief promptings, impulses that I had in wanting to go through these passages of 1 Corinthians is because I know that we're a young church. And by young, I don't just mean the ages of the people here. We got lots of kids, so I'm sure that that's that's true. But we are a youthful church in that we've only been around for a short amount of time. And we want to, as a church, grow and mature and and get out of our lanky phase and and get into our productive phases and, and be effective and efficient in ministry. And we never want to go like, oh, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. Until Jesus returns, we got church down. No, we're prone to all these errors. We want to grow. We want to make sure we're always thinking rightly about these things and we're growing together as a church body and benefiting one another. And doing that will bring great joy. You are designed to live in community with other Christians and to join together in unity. And you are designed to do this with people not like yourself, certainly in a variety of categories, but chiefly here in the way that God has designed you to serve in that church by spiritual gifting. You are designed to relate to and to love and to care for and others. This is one of the lesser uh, brought-up issues with homosexuality. God has not designed us to relate to a mere image of one another. But when a man and a woman come together in marriage, that man has to learn how to relate to an other. That woman has to learn how to, to relate to an other, someone who doesn't think like her, someone who doesn't think like him, someone who doesn't have all the same strengths and weaknesses, even just by gender there. We are designed to grow together in intimate relationships with one another as others. And in church, much of those same experiences will be true. You are not just like everyone else around you in these ways. And yet we are a part of one body. And just as with being a man or a woman, God decides which roles we have. In upcoming weeks, Lord willing, we will explore more of the spiritual gifts. We're still going. There's lots of questions. What's mine? How can I know? Um, what about tongues and prophecy? All of those. We're, we're getting to some of those in upcoming weeks. But for now, become a member at a church. Join together with brothers and sisters. Say, I, I can affirm your faith. I, I, I acknowledge this is a church home here. Let's let's do that. Let's operate together. Let's. Let's make plans together. Let's make productive, ministry-minded plans together. Resolve to start using your gifts for the benefit of others. Resolve to start using your gifts for the benefit of others. Even if you're not entirely sure yet what those are, I don't even know what God's made me to go do. Then start meeting needs. Get to know the brothers and sisters around you. Get to know the needs that you experience in them and hear from them. Get to be close enough to them that you even know what those are. And perhaps through the exercise of the simple, practical meeting of needs, those things will become clearer to you over time. Again, we we wanna help you even do this with the practicalities that might not necessarily be the spiritual gift level level types of needs. We have those those tables out in the lobby that you can sign up and help serve the church here just on a Sunday morning. Get to know other people in that way. Demonstrate that level of service and care for one another, even in that simple way. But You and I know that the world is so confused on diversity and that the church must model it for them. The most beautiful picture of diversity in all of human existence is probably what we observe in Revelation, where people from every tribe, nation, and tongue stand together and sing with one voice praises to our Lord Jesus. It's amazing. That's what true diversity is. People from a variety of different backgrounds and even a variety of different giftings all using them to the glory of God in harmony together. And like players on a football team, when one player wins, we all win. The whole team celebrates victories together and mourns defeat together. And that idea is summarized in the final verse of our passage today. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And this idea, of course, is aspirational. Because we know it's not quite been the case here in the Corinthian church. It's not exactly how it's been going down there, but it should be. And this is what we should all seek to attain as a church. We should be eager to grow into this. Right church living will demand humility, care for others, thinking better of others than yourselves. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In my lifetime, and growing up in Christian church and experiencing time around believers, I've known many, many people who said, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. I'm not sure exactly what ways God has designed for me to serve in a church. But I've also watched time and again that when someone says, I am resolved to find a way to be part of body life and to serve others and to be in that, the Lord honors it. And oftentimes the people do end up figuring out what spiritual gifts they have and how they were designed to use those. We are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And how is it that we are given this kind of charge? Because the head of the body modeled it perfectly. Christ is the head of the church. He is the perfect lead. And Christ is the one who gets down on his knees and washes his feet. Christ is the one who lays down his life for the sins of all of those who will ever believe. In fact, that exact passage in Philippians continues. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's what you need to know today, especially if you're not a believer here. You need to know you are a sinner deserving of death. You deserve a cross like Jesus got. But perfect God-man Jesus came to this earth to live a perfect life like you and I ought to have lived, and he went to the cross to be punished for the sins that you have committed. And only by saving faith in him, believing that he is the Son of God, as he said that he was, he did come to earth for the purpose of dying on the cross, glorifying his Father, bringing together his church, equipping us for the work in this church age. Only by belief in him in that can you have eternal life. If you're not a believer today, you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. It is your only hope. And follow the model of perfect humility that Jesus modeled, who was then brought out of the grave, raised from the dead three days later, and now seats at the right hand of God. As it says in this passage, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what we're to do. My appeal to you this morning is to find a way to make this happen. Seek out membership in a local church. Find a way to serve in that local church. Meet the needs of brothers and sisters around you. And watch our Lord be edified, honored, and glorified in that. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus, I appeal to you today and invite you to do that. We're about to have communion as Pastor Benjamin's going to lead us here in just a moment. He's going to share with you why it is so important for us to have this, but, but that if you're not a believer, this, this meal will not be one that is for you. We want you to join in with us. If you have questions or thoughts about that today, please don't leave before talking to someone here. Just grab someone randomly and say, what does it mean to be a Christian? How does that work? I I, want to understand more, and we'll spend our time with you. You need to know this. For the rest, let's share in the Lord's Supper this morning.